Hello and welcome to the Cinementalist podcast for Cinementalist.com. Gosh, I sounded happy there. <laughs> Maybe overcooked that one a little False bit. advertising. Yeah. <laughs> it's not going to be that good, I promise you. <laughs> My name's Andy. Uh, sitting next to me is Floki, our bearded dragon mascot. And as you can probably tell, sitting opposite me, as usual, is Liam. How's it going, my friend? I'm pretty good, mate. How are you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not too bad. Good Thank yumdrops. Floki managed to escape today, by the way. Really? Yep. I was. Uh, I went into his tank to um, stop him from stepping in his own poo. Which oh, nice. Yeah. I think you'll agree is a worthwhile endeavour. Mm-hmm. And he managed to jump past me and run across the room. Uh, you, have you ever seen that footage, like nature documentary footage of those lizards? They're, they're kind of frilled and they puff out their frills and they put their mouth wide open and they run across water because they go so fast, like they run on their hind legs. It's ringing a bell, yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm sure I must have seen that. He was exactly like that, man. He literally like went across halfway across the room in about two seconds flat with me chasing him on my hands and fucking knees. And how hard were you freaking out? Yeah, fairly, fairly. <laughs> he puffed himself up so he made himself twice the size as well. And then when I picked him up, he hissed at me and tried to bite me. Just when you thought he was calming down. I know, right? It's, that's the aggiest he's yeah, ever been. That, you thought yeah. that was the end of his stroppy teenager phase. He's going to be no. nice and chilled. And He got a damn good talking to afterwards, I'll tell you that much. And if, if a lizard can receive a bollocking, then Floki did indeed receive one. Well, it looks like he's staring at the wall right now, having a good long, hard think about what he's done. Yeah, he so. has calmed down for the minute, but um, be fully prepared for him headbutting against the window as he <laughs> has a, a lovely tendency to do when we like to record. As we kick this episode off. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Isn't that superb? How have you been anyway, man? Are you good? Yeah, all right, man. You know, just uh, things are just nice. You know, they're just boilerplate nice. Mm-hmm. Nothing extraordinarily exciting, but nothing extraordinarily terrible either. Just Speaking of boilerplate, actually, I know we've got a lot of you listeners in the US and Canada and um, apparently there's the big heat dome at the moment we've seen all this in the news I'm ashamed to say this has eluded me it hit 48 degrees in Canada the other day what the fuck yeah in Canada of all fucking places I've been to Canada man they are not built for heat (laughs) as you would imagine right last time I was in Canada it was like minus 40 degrees with wind chill but yeah it was 48 degrees in Canada and like 52 degrees in Death Valley and shit like that. Apparently, a lot of America is baking right now. So uh, to all of our listeners out there, I hope you're staying cool. There's loads of Quebecois running around shirtless going, sacre bleu, sacre bleu. Yeah. Meanwhile, in little old England, <laughs> we're complaining that it's 25 degrees. <laughs> yeah, we're a bunch of pussies. However, as usual, we are sitting here with the windows and the door shut and a very slow-moving fan going in the background for audio purposes. So we're sweating along with you. It'll be 48 <laughs> degrees in here by the time we finish recording. It always bloody is. Right, anyway, let's kick off with some film news this week. First up, you remember I reported on the June release date a few episodes ago. Yes. It's supposed to be at that film festival on 23rd of September. Uh They have moved it again. There is no such thing as a concrete release date anymore. Uh, Warner Brothers has shifted the sci-fi epic to October the 22nd, apparently. And it was supposed to be in September, you said. Yeah. This is apparently, uh, this is from an article from Variety.com, by the way. This is part of a larger release date shuffle by Warner Brothers on Friday. Uh, The Many Saints of Newark, of course, the Sopranos prequel was pushed back one week, which has now taken the original spot held by Dune. Um, The Sopranos prequel will now launch on October the 1st. Clint Eastwood's upcoming film, Cry Macho, um, was bumped up one month after Dune took its previous spot. Cry Macho will now release on September the 17th, three weeks ahead of its prior date of October 22nd. So this is them shuffling all the release dates around God knows why. An algorithm has told them this is a good idea. I saw the, um, I don't know if you have, but I saw the trailer for Many Saints of Newark. Mm, yeah. That looks a bit weird tonally. It does, yeah. I didn't get a Sopranos vibe from it, although maybe that's not the point. Yeah, I didn't get a Sopranos vibe in the slightest, but, you know, is that a bad thing? Not necessarily. Yeah, I'm a bit... Some things I think should just be left to stay where they are. And I I consider The Sopranos to be, especially in my role as a TV critic, I mean, The Sopranos is hallowed ground. And that's the thing that really kicked off the golden age of television that... Yo, it's enabled me to have a career. You know, it's, it's, it's like the, yeah, I mean, the original, the best. I mean, for example, I mean, citing James Gandolfini's last cinematic role, because I adored The Drop, I thought it was fabulous, but it, lo- it looks like the kind of trailer that you would see for a film like The Drop. And I just think, be it, you know, some, I mean, there were some special episodes, obviously, that were feature length, but just I'd say that The Sopranos all across the board, those, that tone... That intention, aesthetically, it just, it, it, yeah, it doesn't feel in any way 
like the show did. Mm. Even when the, because the show obviously had some very, very dark and very difficult moments, but it, it still didn't have that kind of grey action thriller sheen. Yeah, there was know? a certain cinematic quality to The Sopranos, which is sort of the whole point of it, really, is the first time or one of the first times where people will argue about what was the, the kickoff of the golden age of television. But I personally think it's The Sopranos. But part of the reason was it was shot like one long mob movie. The cinematography looked as good as anything you'd ever seen on the silver screen. And yeah, I, I got a more smaller production value vibe, yeah. it, which might work in its favour. You know, again, not going to cast uh, judgment on anything until I've seen it. But yeah, there was just other things. Like for example, they talk about Chris's dad, Dicky Multisanti, even though he's unseen in the show. They talk about him as even though he's one of Tony's heroes. He had bad, bad dependency problems. He was a junkie. He was an alcoholic, etc. And they've got Alessandro Nivola as looking like quite a suave, playboyish. Mm-hmm. And I just, I, again, I need to stop because I need is to it, see it first. Is but. it Michael Gandolfini in his uh, young Tony's? I yeah, I think this kid's name is Michael, isn't it? Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what he does with that. I mean, does, I, when, when you look at him closely, the resemblance to his dad is quite strong. I kind of feel sorry for the kid as well, you know what yeah. I mean? Because that's such, uh, I mean, just about any actor in the world will tell you. Gandalfini as Tony Soprano is just one of the greatest performances of all yeah. time. It's like Brando in On the Waterfront. You know, it's just one of those yeah. landmark things. What a what a legacy to try and live up to. You know, big shoes to fill. A role played by your father, who is no longer with us. Yeah, I mean, that's got to feel pretty fucking weird. I'm just, I'm, I imagine it would. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah, absolutely. But I, fingers, I wish him all the best. You know? Absolutely, yeah. Fingers, as always, fingers crossed. You know, good hopes. Yeah, so, yeah absolutely. Yeah, let's hope it turns out well. A sequel has been announced for a film that uh, you rated quite highly when you reviewed it on the podcast. Uh, this is The Old Guard. Uh, oh, yeah, that was very enjoyable. Yeah, the sequel script is complete, apparently. The film is to shoot in 2022 and it will star Charlize Theron. Uh, an adaptation of the graphic novel of the same name, The Old Guard was written and directed by Gina Prince-Bythewood. The film was about a small group of immortal soldiers led by a woman named Andy, played by Theron, who have been working as mercenaries for centuries. But the group gets a shock when they find a new immortal woman not long after they discover that an evil group has video evidence of their immortality. I remember this was a, kind of a surprise when you rated it because I saw some middling reviews. Yeah, I mean, really I, I, I found it to be sort of like a crazy good time popcorn you know, reminded me, uh, you know, there's bits of Highlander in there and, you know, other sorts of things. I, I just found it to be a very fun romp, mm. you know, in the sort of high-octane entertainment, mad, just don't take it at all seriously sort of way. And I think that it actually delivered on those fronts. Uh, Room for a sequel, in your opinion? Um, I think a sequel could be... This is the thing. It's a turn-your-brain-off film. So, and... I must say, a lot of the negative reviews that I've read regarding the original The Old God, they just it's just people having a go at it because it's doing what it's supposed to do, mm. being a silly, mad, action, popcorn romp. That's what it set out to do. That's what it does. So it's like people having a go at it for not being cerebral enough. I just think it's just like, whoosh. You sure. know, yeah, yeah. Like, lighten up, fucker, you know. But um, yeah, I'd be interested to see a sequel. It could be a grand laugh, you know? So. Well, quite a while yet anyway, because it's going to be shooting in 2022. So I imagine this will be a summer 2023 release or something More than like likely, that. But yeah. it's happening regardless. Uh, Stephen King's been back in the uh, cinema-related news recently. Oh, yes. At the very least, delivering his opinions on, uh, on horror movies <laughs> for some reason. <laughs> Uh, we had covered an article a little while back about he reckoned the uh, scariest horror film he'd ever seen, one of the actually had to turn off, was The Blair Witch Project. Oh, yeah, I remember you saying, yeah. Um, he's also named now the worst horror movie he's ever seen. And this is an article from Cinema Blend. Um, he's been tweeting recently about his excitement for upcoming films. He's been posting theories about regarding uh, popular television and shows he's enjoying. And, uh, well, I'll read out his tweet. What is the worst horror movie you ever saw? For me, Blood Feast. Ever see Blood Feast? Um, see, I'm trying to remember if um, it's Blood Feast or Blood Freak, which is about the guy who eats some contaminated turkey meat and grows the head of a turkey and then goes on an axe-wielding killing spree. Oh, you did that on um, So Bad It's Good on the Premium Podcast. I think I may have done. I remember that plot description. That's, that's like uh, early to mid-70s. Oh, this, um, uh, so, no, I, th- I think that might be Blood Freak that I'm thinking oh, of. Blood Feast, I haven't seen it either. Apparently it was uh, released in 1963. Oh, yeah, no, too early. Yeah, so yeah, this is a different film. It's considered to be the seminal feature of the splatter film subgenre. But clearly that clout has zero impact on Stephen King's sentiments. 
made for less than $25,000 and shot in just four days. Blood Feast is best known for its extreme depictions of violence, telling the story of a serial killer who kills women in the effort to hold the titular gore banquet and resurrect an Egyptian goddess. And I've got a feeling this now, this film is now, if it wasn't already, going to be a cult classic purely because Stephen King has said it's the most terrible horror film he's ever seen. And I thought, well, at least one of us has to watch it now and do a review. I mean, surely with that sort of, um, well, it's not really a recommendation, is it? But you know what I mean? It's got a hype now. We need to see it. It needs to be part of our lexicon. Oh, people are going to be um, tracking that motherfucker down in any way, shape and form they can, man. Trust me on that one. A nice article here from Deadline. Uh, I just like the title on this one. Hell freezes over. Steven Spielberg's Amblin Partners in Deal to Make Movies for Netflix. Okay. <laughs> now, there's a nice little bit of sort of irony here. Many, many people have been pointing this out, is that Steven Spielberg, who um, very, very recently was campaigning for films that are released on streaming services not to be uh, eligible for nomination for awards, is now partnering with Netflix in order to release his more recent work. That's a bit strange, isn't it? Yes, I mean... Uh, <laughs> I don't blame him for changing his mind. I just think it was really, really silly of him in the first place to discredit a whole... It's not even a, a genre of films or whatever. It's just a medium for watching films. I never got the argument of why films that are released on streaming services shouldn't be under the same consideration as films that are shown in the cinema. What kind of weird, weird logic is that? But now he's had to um, swallow his own ass. I think is probably the best way of putting this by realizing that, yes, this is the way forward and that working with Netflix and getting your films out to a streaming audience is perhaps not the worst idea in the world. Thoughts think, on this? I think something uh, sort of quintessentially British and maybe quite positive that we or maybe someone else could do is maybe send out a five-second clip of a very quaint, well-dressed British man just going, now, now, don't put your head above the parapet with a silly idea. <laughs> and just circulate that around all social media and everywhere so that hopefully just about everyone will happen upon it and it will give them pause before they come out with the kind of opinions that Spielberg did because now he has made himself look like a bit of a tit. He has indeed, yeah. So yeah. yes, that's, yeah. I do worry sometimes when you get, Scorsese's been doing it in recent years as well where it's like, his whole thing about Marvel movies not being movies. I sort of get where he's going with that and his point and all that, but I do get the sense it is that old man shaking fist at cloud kind of thing. It's kind of, what is the point of going, you young kids these days don't know what you're on about. When there, obviously there are millions upon millions of film fans out there that are well aware of Taxi Driver and James Cagney's White Heat and all these classics and things, but they also enjoy things like Iron Man. You know, you can have yeah. the you can have the two together. Well, I've actually just yeah. railing against it and going, kids these days don't even know what films are. How can you watch a film properly on your phone? It just makes you look arrogant. Unfortunately, um, most cinephiles that I have spoken to who approach that sort of age bracket, I hate saying this, and I'm not saying that. Every, Get off my lawn. Yeah, I'm not saying that everyone is the same, but it's just anecdotally, it's a, you know, a bit of, you know, a consistent anecdotal evidence from me, if you like, if that counts. Just about all of them, when they talk about films that they love, they always throw in the zinger, well, well this one's before your time, this one's before your time. It's like, yeah, I still know it. I'm still mm. aware of it. I'm still like... It's it, it, you may I don't know if you mean it, but it's very patronizing. Well, that's the amazing <laughs> thing about film and just all sort of visual media, really, isn't it? Is that it's recorded? Yeah, which means you can watch it even if you're not there at the time while it was being made. Yeah, it's, it's before you're, it's you. It's kind of useful. You weren't you weren't born when it was released, so there's no way you could ever you know track it down some other way just by investigation. <laughs> you know, just by like you know like like that was the way I discovered many of my dearly beloved favorites because. I fell in love with film and I endeavoured to root around and seek out as many as I can through the use of stuff like IMDb and the Halliwell Guides and Radio Times. People do actually do that. It does give me great encouragement, actually, when uh, we engage with film Twitter and all of these sort of online communities and things, just how many people that are a lot younger than us even are saying, oh, yeah, I watched this film from the 70s the other week. Oh, I've been going through like 60s British cult classics and stuff like that. There's just how many people out there. Uh, I, get, I get the same sort of vibe as like, if you look at a 15-year-old a Spotify playlist, it's kind of amazing actually. Because just about every one that I've seen, yeah, there's sort of some of the modern, like poppier stuff that you would expect on there. And some of the you know, mumble rap and trip and all these kind of old oh, kids music these days, it's terrible. But there's stuff like the Rolling Stones in there. You know, there's always a few Beatles tracks. There's always a few, it's, I think tastes have just become more eclectic. 
because the access to it has become more universal. Yeah. And I think that works with media as well. I don't think many people out there are not watching you know, 70s and 80s classics and things like that. If anything, they're more treasured than they were when they were released. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll meet people in there, you know, because we're obviously in our 30s, and I meet people in there, you know, 10 years younger than us who are very passionate about film and they speak really enthusiastically about movies from every decade, from any, every genre. And that really, you know, that's like a fucking getting really high off my tits you know, hearing that and listening to that and seeing mm. people just, in, in, just seeing people infused with that exact same nutty enthusiasm that I have as well. It's a real rush and um, and it swarts the notion that some of the uh, old God have like, you know, these meddling kids and their inferior tastes, they don't know, blah, 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 blah. It's patently incorrect. Yeah, it just makes you look like old man shakes fist at cloud, get off of my lawn. It does, sadly. Sadly, it does. And some of these people are people I respect for their filmmaking abilities, but I do wish that they wouldn't, they just wouldn't do that. Yeah. That'd be nice. <laughs> As a quick shill for us, if you are a younger listener and you're looking for recommendations, we do tons of that shit on the premium content. Yes. <laughs> and we also say, if you haven't heard of it, not you you wouldn't have heard of it. Yeah. <laughs> There's a key demarcation. <laughs> oh, you need to check this out because, uh, yeah, only serious film fans are aware of that. No, we're not one of those pretentious podcasts. So and we're, we're never going to become one. We try not to be. <laughs> Tell us if we're painfully deluded. Right in. However, it is quite pretentious <laughs> referencing our own stuff like that, so I'll stop right now. Anyway, let's crack on with the rest of the episode this week. Liam, as usual, has a couple of film reviews for us. Uh, what are we kicking off with, dude? Um... Uh, we are going with uh, the second instalment in the A Quiet Place mm. film franchise. I mean, I guess I'd call it for now uh, a duology. Sure. I don't know if it's going to be franchised further, but yes. The first one made so much money, I imagine a franchise a- is absolutely. a Absolutely. Well, I recall um, me and you and your good Lady Harfus, we will watch the first one together. You enjoy the first one? I did, yeah. Yes, yeah. Very uh, impressive sort of uh, writing and directorial yeah. debut from old John Krasinski. I thought it was interesting in that it's sort of billed as a horror, and I get why people consider it to be a horror, but I thought it was more of a, a tense thriller. I know it's yeah. got the monster aspect to it, but it, it wasn't, I didn't find it scary, but I found it very tense and I like that. With I a very sort that. of believable and poignant uh, family study mm. at its heart. You and know, the clever gimmick with you can't speak because the monsters will hear you. And yeah. Was, yeah. Was, yeah. Well, I mean, ideas. I, I really, really enjoyed um, the original A Quiet Place released back in 2018. And so um, upon news that there was going to be a follow-up, uh, I was quite excited about it. And over the weekend, I did indeed see it. So again, this is directed by John Krasinski. And in the opening, uh, it opens up with a title that says Day One. And this begins at least for the first sort of, uh, I think, 15, 20 minutes. Uh, it technically takes the form of a prequel because it's uh, we open up on the very first day of the invasion of the extremely dangerous extraterrestrial creatures that end up overrunning the planet and sending everyone into perpetual silence. And it's like Lee Abbott Krasinski just going about his usual day, you know, going, you know, around the town saying hello to people. Then he goes and meets his wife, Evelyn, play obviously played by real life wife, Emily Blunt. And uh, they go to their son, uh, Marcus's football game, Marcus Noah Duke returning from the first film. Sorry, his baseball game, not his football game, his baseball game. And, uh, you know, everyone's, you know, got a nice small town kind of community ethic about it. Everyone's cheering on. You've got uh, Killian Murphy is uh, Emmett, who is a very good friend of Lee Abbott's. Yeah, I was interested to see him in the cast. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, he plays Emmett, who's like a local, and he gets on, you know, he's very good friends with uh, John Krasinski's character of Lee and seems to be quite friendly with the Abbott family in general. And uh, they're all watching Marx's ball game, and suddenly they all look up. They know it's something very strange. There is an enormous fireball in the sky with a monstrous plume of black smoke rocketing behind it and is hurtling very, very steadily in sharp diagonal line towards the ground. And everyone looks at it and is like, right, don't know what the fuck that is, but I think we all should just get out of here because that's pretty weird. It's probably bad bad news. Yeah. yeah, probably bad news, whatever it is. So everyone starts to, you know, not in catastrophic stampede fashion, but everyone sort of starts to take a healthily paced exit out of the baseball stadium. Everyone move calmly. Yeah. <laughs> and they get in their cars and um, 
Lee is about to start up his motor and he sees a local cop that he knows and he gets out of the car and goes, I don't know what's going on, man, but this seems a bit worrying. Cop's right in the middle of replying and suddenly, boom, the squad car is knocked over by one of the nasty, bad alien things. Everyone starts freaking the fuck out. Lee jumps in his truck. Evelyn jumps in her truck. They've got, uh, Evelyn's got the daughter, uh, Reagan, obviously, played by uh, Millicent Simmons, who is, uh, she's deaf in the film and in real life, gave a really excellent performance in the first film, and there's no real difference here. And um, everyone starts freaking out, and they all hightail it, um, seeing people getting jumped on and knocked out of the way and just brutally mangled by these horrible alien monstrosities. And uh, they all take cover in a local tavern and they're trying to just remain very... They obviously don't immediately know at this point that the creatures are blind with extraordinarily acute hearing, but they just instinctively try and get everyone in there to shut the fuck up, but it doesn't work and it's more carnage. And then bang, we cut to day 474. So it's this is 15 months after the index day, if you like. Now... Obviously, I don't, I don't really, I mean, should I sort of uh, take care with spoilers in case people haven't seen the first one? Or? To a degree, I think. I've got a similar problem coming up with my TV of the week, actually. Okay, so if you have seen the original A Quiet Place, you know that there are certain differences to the central family of the Abbots now. And so uh, we now have a lead parent and her brood making their way out of the compound that they were in for the majority of the first film just to see if they can seek safer shelter elsewhere because where they were is no longer that secure, even though they have found ways to alleviate the hostility of the alien presence. They're still not that, so they want to get somewhere that's a bit safer. So they start travelling along the road and um, eventually, and after a bit of um, rather nerve-jangling hassle, they come across an abandoned sort of, it's like a, it's, it's kind of like a, it looks like a watchtower, an old-fashioned watchtower on a railway. So do they, do they have, don't they have things in the States that they have like some sort of big things above railway tracks so that people can watch down or some shit or am I just totally... Oh, like, but I'm going to say yes, but I'm, I'll I'm, be honest. I'm, gonna, no I'm, I'm just going to assume that, and I guard towers, guard towers from yeah, the railway. Any, any Americans listening going, what is this fucking limey idiot on about? Please feel free to write in and correct me. <laughs> yeah. Tell me what the hell I'm actually talking about. We don't about. have those. So <laughs> they arrive at whatever this fucking thing is that's near a railway station. Sorry, just off a railway station. And um, they find that living there in petrified, furtive in resilient silence is Emmett, old Killian Murphy, who we mentioned was there at the start. And he says, it's not that I don't want to, but I really can't help you. So I have enough trouble fending for myself. I, I can't like, look after a bunch of new people. I'm sorry. It's not, it's not that I don't want to, it's that I cannot. So you're going to need to find, try and find safe passage somewhere else. But the family aren't particularly happy with that. The young daughter, Reagan, um, she picks up uh, a transmission on the radio that they listen to. It's somewhere playing Beyond the Sea by Bobby, Bobby Darren. And she interprets this as a message from a community where the people there may or may not be entirely or virtually safe altogether from the uh, antagonistic creatures. And she wants to go there, but Emmett and... The other family members say, no, that's ridiculous. Don't, don't think you're right. They don't put yourself in danger, but she sets out anyway. And so it then turns into a race against time to locate her and try and bring her back. And also the other family members dealing with a potential attacks and mortal threat due to just injuries and inadvertent noise. Because this is the thing. One of the things that I think the first movie got down so well is that even if you try painstakingly try as hard as you can, you I think you are going to at some point make some noise completely inadvertently. And these things are utterly hypersensitive to any kind of noise. You could whistle and they will hear you from a fucking mile away. It is that dangerous. And uh, that I think in both uh, the first film and the sequel, that really, really helps amplify the tension. Oh, absolutely, yeah. So, um, so ultimately, Quiet Place Part Two, the uh, the cinematography and the score, um, are both you know 
it's well matched in terms of it's, it's still a good looking film, very good use of locations, very good um, visual threat. Um, that there's, there's that just that particular, I think it's sort of like people know what kind of music I'm referring to. It's a very, very anxiety inducing piece of music that is a motif throughout the original film. And that sort of opens up this one. And, you know, that obviously that really is there to, it felt like it was there as a familiarization for people who love the first film. Because one thing I will say, even though I've said previously, I prefer, I ultimately prefer it if sequels are able to be watched as standalones. I think that with the second installment to A Quiet Place, you really do have to have seen the first one. But uh, because of that, if you have seen the first one, there is a lot of emotional punch in this one that I think a lot of fans of the original one will appreciate. Some very good set pieces. Again, really, really great moments of um, terror. I was on edge a lot throughout this. And, and some really cool and nifty plot developments. It, you know, it keeps its hand on the heart, really, like, as the first one, that it's still got a lot of poignancy in there. The only real difference is, so I'd say it's, it rests a bit more on action than the first one did, because the first one is heavily invested in the study of a family dynamic, and not only are they trying to survive the peril of these uh, mad fucking blind superhero, sorry, superhearing vicious extraterrestrials, but they also have internal problems, and not, I wouldn't really call it dysfunction, but they just have some problems that they manage to address and get over. And um, this film is more predicated on action and threats than it is with that. And I would have preferred if they kept the previous vein consistent. So is this sort of that classic uh, aliens to alien dynamic, where in order to make the sequel, you have to make it bigger and more action-packed? to go beyond the tense horror of the first one into a, a wider dynamic. Well, yeah, the, the, well the, the thing is, you don't necessarily need to have seen Alien to have to see Aliens. Right. So I, yeah. I would say. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I yeah, I go with that. Say, yeah, sure. whereas I do, I do believe that if you haven't seen the first A Quiet Place, I think this one will probably leave you feeling, this film will just leave you feeling a bit cold. Mm. But if you have seen the original one, I actually think this film will do something for you um, on an emotional level. So there are some very good set pieces and uh, it builds tension very nicely throughout. Um, I just didn't, it didn't really, you know, by the end of the first one, I was tremendously moved. And um, I thought that, you know, the first one uh, it had a great effect of a sort of emotional whirly gig. I think it did that very, very effectively. This one had that to a lesser extent. So it's basically, it's a more action-y follow-up. And um, I would see, I would rave about the first film. I wouldn't necessarily rave about this one. But what I will say is if you are a fan of the original one, I think that you will get nice, um, a nice sort of uh, visceral kick out of it. And it will also give you, uh, it will also sanct your, it will sanct your emotional investment in these characters. Oh, so cool. yeah, so it's not it's not blinding, it's not standalone, but it's is it cool? Yeah, it is, and it, I would say if you liked the first one, this is definitely worth checking out. Well, I have to say, um, well done then, if your review is accurate, and I believe it always is, to uh, John Krasinski because I remember reading an interview with him where we, when he did the first A Quiet Place, he had no idea whether it was going to be a success or not, and he had absolutely no plans whatsoever for a sequel. And then when the studio came back to him and said, it did really, really well, we need a sequel out of you. He was like, yeah. I have no idea what to write. Well, he so actually, the fact that he's managed to pull something out of his ass by the scenes of it, that's, that's good. Yeah. Is uh, quite impressive. And he appears, and he because he does appear um, non-linearly uh, in the opening of the, of the second film. And, uh, and he has stated that his reason for that is that the first one wasn't what is such a personal film for him because he's, he, he basically made that film for his own children, for his own wife and children. It's something like, it's something very metaphorical and very personal about it. And so um, I think that uh, him having himself in this one just for a little bit, some people might view it as self-indulgent, but I actually, it's, it's actually a move that I can really empathise with and respect. Mm, yeah, that's some continuity, yeah. surely. And, yeah. and, you, and you can tell that he really does care about all of these all of these characters. He cares about every single person that turns up in it. The characters are well-written. The atmosphere is palpable. There is really tangible dread and fear and heartbreak and optimism there. It's just that that is so much more pronounced in 
the first one, but it is not absent from the second one. And if you are a fan and you have yet to see the second installment, you won't be wasting your time in checking it out. Excellent. I'll be giving that a look. And then next up, sort of treading similar, well, a bit more horror-ish territory. I watched uh, Gaia. This is a new uh, South African outing from uh, Yako Bauva or Bouva. I think it's Jack. Yeah, Jaco Bova or something. I think he's. Don't Af- ask me about pronunciations, man. I fuck one up yeah. every week. I believe he is uh, an Afrikaner gentleman, and I'm sorry if I'm butchering his name, but it's, yeah, I think it's Jaco Bava or Jaco Bava. But um, yes, this is a brand spanking new horror film, uh, and this uh, opens up down a rather sinister-looking forest river that is just surrounded by it looks like infinite miles of uh, very dense rather threatening looking trees and uh, we close in on a two-person boat being rowed down the river containing uh, Gabby played by Monique Rockman who is a forest ranger and her colleague Winston played by Anthony Osiemi and uh, they're flying a drone around uh, for purposes of uh, land inspection you know just doing a kind of routine tour just make sure that there's nothing there that shouldn't be there. No, nobody started any illegal fires. There's nobody doing things they shouldn't be doing. And she's flying the drone around and they're sort of bullshitting, chit-chatting to each other. And um, eventually the, the drone goes down deep into the forest and um, Gabby's controlling it from the boat. And it happens upon a man, a young-looking man, who is at least from the waist up, topless, and he's got loads of dirt smeared over his face and he looks quite shocked. And then the drone just cuts out and falls to the floor. She looks at this. She shows Winston. She's like, what the fuck is this? Please pull up by the bank. That's a really expensive piece of equipment. I need to try and retrieve it. And he's just like, oh, you fucking, oh, you know, it's too dangerous in there. But okay, you got one hour. Like, be in there. Get in there. Get the fuck out as soon as you find it. And, you know, just run up the river and holler at me if you need to find me. But get in there and get out as quickly as possible. She's like, okay. And uh, so she goes to uh, try and find the drone. All of a sudden, night starts ascending rapidly and uh, Gabby ends up injuring herself on um, a very nasty-looking uh, piece of spiked wood, um, which looks very, very suspiciously like a trap that was laid there, well, for either beast or maybe man, who knows? And she impales her foot on it quite badly and uh, tries to signal to Winston, screaming for his help, but he picks up on it too late um, because... Gabby manages to pull the spike out of her foot and make her way rather deliriously and in great pain through some clearings. And in the progressive dark, she comes across this little hut right in the middle of the woods. And surrounding the hut is sort of like a red, a permanently red and deep blue sort of mini Aurora Borealis. It's got all these strange lights surrounding it. And it's a very creepy looking cabin in the middle of the woods. And she just sees it and starts to perambulate towards it. And obviously at this point, I'm thinking, okay, this is fucking strange, but I'm rolling with it. Because this is all within, I don't know, the first 15 minutes maybe. Oh, wow, it's a quick pace. Yeah, yeah. Winston scrambling to find her. And and now it's like, as I said, it gets black very, very quickly. The night just descends extremely quickly and he's scrambling around and um, he gets stuck, you know, sort of stuck in in a wady swamp and um, he starts getting chased by something. Not quite sure what it is, but it looks very, very freaky. He panics, he runs, cuts back to Gabby. She goes into this cabin. There's nobody there. And uh, she lies down and she tries to see if she can do anything about her wound. Now, as all of this is happening, the film has been cutting to sort of several minutes each of two men, one who looks to be in about his late 40s, early 50s, and another one who is significantly younger, who appear to be in the same forest hunting with tribal paints and loincloths and very, you know, they are dressed, even though this is clearly modern day, they are dressed essentially like what someone may stereotypically assume the average hunter-gatherer to have looked like in prehistoric society. Or, you know, maybe maybe a bit more recently than that, a lot of people say in um, equatorial rainforests, you know, have undiscovered tribes, of course, and these two men... Um, are dressed in that fashion and uh, they are shown hunting various 
fauna uh, that use for food and making these sort of engaging in this sort of quite strange and vague looking incantation sort of behavior. Some, there's some mysticism going on there. And it turns out that this hut that Gabby stumbles into, this belongs to these men. And these men, as it transpires, are father and son. They are Baron, played by Col Neal, and Baron's son, Stefan, played by Alex Van Dijk. And uh, it turns out that uh, Baron used to be a scientist, but his wife passed away from a very aggressive form of cancer. And this seemed to have had quite a phenomenal effect on his psyche. And so he took Stefan and decided to just throw themselves into very much a complete Luddite existence, you know, and then some completely back to the land, I'd say, you know, a bit, little bit Theodore Kaczynski-ish, rejection of technology, rejection of modern society, just rejection of anything that any given person in the, I'd say, the developed world of the 21st century would call a, a convenience. All modern conveniences is back to nature because they believe it's less corrupting. And while they have been living in this rainforest, they have taken to worshipping what Baron refers to as, well, he refers to it as God, but also the largest living superorganism in the history of the universe, which is a this kind of monstrous fungal deity that lives beneath the earth, but also takes the form of several very scary-looking, blind, fungal-headed, demonic creatures. This is all sounding pretty crazy so far, yeah? It is. Yeah, yes. it's, it's sounding good, to be quite yes. honest. And uh, so... Uh, from that point, I mean, like it, it cuts back uh, now and again to Winston, but um, Winston, let's just say Winston has an extraordinarily hard time of it in this kind of wacky and wild new environment that the two of them find themselves thrust into. And uh, Gabby is obviously initially suspicious, very suspicious of Barrend and Stefan because it's like these two guys, they're just living in the middle of the fucking woods. Um, the father, at least, is... Um, He's, bi he's bilingual, he speaks English and Afrikaans fluently, and he's a very, very intelligent man. He's actually writing sort of like a, an Una Bomber-esque manifesto, except with less preaching of violence and more metaphysics. You know, so these are, this is a very, very learned man. He's just doing this for very strong philosophical convictions. And uh, Gabby is wary of them, but then she begins to become more curious and it's suggested that her curiosity is being influenced in some way by a sort of a, an ominous energy that is being transmitted by this fungal thing, essentially, that um, owns and infects, as she puts it at one point, the environment around them. And so it's basically, it's part, where does the evil really lie? You know, is, is, is it in the things that I've witnessed and the things that they speak of and seem to have some sort of theistic worship of, or is it these people, this father and son, who seem initially to be very, very strange, but not altogether that threatening or nasty. And it's, it's that, but it's also uh, very much married up with absolute sort of eco-philosophical, visually maniacal head trip that has all sorts of things to do with uh, religion and nature, nature worship, commentary on consumerism and narcissism. It's, uh, yeah, this is very much a, a super, super, super cerebral eco-horror um, with a lot of social commentary and existential commentary and um, some very, very frightening imagery, um, but also a good deal of uh, poignancy in there as well with some very cool performances. Um, this film is absolutely worth the watch at least once. I'm not sitting here and saying, oh, you know, this is one of the best films I've seen this year. You absolutely have to see, you know, this is one of the films you need to see before you eventually shuffle off the mortal coil. It's not one of those wham, bam, I am fucking absolutely amazed, but it is very, very fascinating. There is a very, very interesting vision here that um, Yako Balva and, and, and co have. And uh, there's some very, very interesting dialogue and ideas. Great, um, really good cinematography, actually, there by um, Jori van der Volt, because uh, this was filmed in the, um, the Sitsikama Forest in um, South Africa. And uh, there's some great, great utility of that. It's very, very well shot and a really nice sort of colour contrast. It shifts quite suddenly in a few scenes between night and day, and that's jarring in quite a satisfying manner. The soundtrack also is uh, by... Um, Pierre-Henri uh, Vicom, and uh, that it's got like this sort of, 
you know, that primitive kind of tribal percussion mm-hmm. that um, we, we, and it's adorned with very uh, creepy soundscape in general. There's something very, you know, you know, you're dealing with there's some like, atavism and some real primitive, primordial menace here, or, you know, is it or isn't it a menace? Depends how you look at it, because it's woven in with a lot of um, commentary on uh, human society and, you know, who has the correct attitudes, if, if anyone, if it, any of the, Perspectives in the film could really be called correct attitudes or if it's all some mad, completely terrifying and uh, dream logic fever nightmare because that's, you know, there, there is, it does have a solid layer of ambiguity there that really helps it out. And um, there are a lot of people who uh, seem to be a little bit unhappy with how many questions the narrative left open. But I'm always a sucker for that. If it's done, if it's actually done in a way that doesn't insult the viewer's intelligence, and it does in ways that provoke thoughts and provoke interesting discussion and ideas, I'm always a very big fan of that. And I think that uh, Gaia, for the most part, is successful on that count. Um, but yeah, some people will be frustrated by its vagueness, but I found it to be a really, um, I was, my attention was thoroughly held all the way through. And I was very, very interested in what it was attempting to do. And I've, I've been thinking about it since I saw it a couple of days ago. So I wasn't, yeah, I wasn't blown over. You know, this is, you know, it isn't something like The Witch or Hereditary that, you know, because those films very much did that for me. It didn't absolutely bowl me over and send me nuts. But, I do think it was good. I do think it's worth checking out. If you want to see um, some very, very cool horror atmosphere that actually does build dread nicely and you want to, like, sort of see some, you know, neo-Luddism and uh, human societal critique and uh, just very, very terrifying Yodorowsky-esque nightmare visuals, I think Gaia is probably a night well spent for that. Excellent. That sounds really, really intriguing. Yeah, no, it's, it's, I'll tell you what, it's very interesting, man. It's very, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a bold, it's a bold film. It's somebody who is do it, trying to do something different. And um, yeah, on that count, uh, check it out and just, yeah, see, see what you think. Because, um, you know, they're not just resting on tired old hackney cliches. And anytime that's, that occurs, more of that, please. So yeah, cool. Cool stuff. Excellent. All right, then. TV of the week. And uh, boy, do I have a humdinger this week. A humdinger, yes. A humdinger indeed, yes. This is called Invincible. Any uh, any reference on this one? Heard anything about this one? Is uh, one of the people involved with this uh, J.K. Simmons? It is indeed, I yes. have heard little bits and pieces about this one. This is billed as an adult animated superhero streaming television series. So we are definitely in the realms of full-on animation. In fact, it's animated to look pretty much exactly like... Um, do you remember the 90s X-Men cartoon? There'll be a, like Saturday morning cartoons kind of thing. Vaguely. You remember that sort of animation where it was, I'm sure it was animated in Asia, but it was that sort of 2D cartoony animation. Looks like it came straight off the page of a comic book. Um, varies in frames per second, that sort of thing. Do you know roughly where I am with that style of yeah, animation? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. So superhero I'll comic book, nineties, 80s, 90s, Saturday yep. morning cartoon TV yes. animation stuff. Yep. And um, I'm going to do the plot setup on this with a caveat, but I will get to that in a minute. So this opens with um, two security guards outside the White House. And they're having a long, in-depth, meaningful discussion about uh, the relationship they have with their respective children. And they're having sort of this big existential discussion that you feel like you sort of zoomed in from nowhere on these two guys' personal conversation only to be interrupted by two gigantic blue alien-looking men who burst up from underneath the ground and begin attacking the White House. And so the White House turret defences go up. Again, we're definitely in superhero near-future kind of world here. (laughs) They pull out some big guns and start shooting. The security guards are blown to one side and are terrified by these two aliens that seem to have attacked them out of absolutely nowhere. And everything looks pretty grim. The White House is about to fall until they are interrupted by the emergence of the Guardians of the Globe. Now, this is a team of superheroes uh, made up of many parts. Uh, I'm going to list a few of them here. There's War Woman, who is definitely Wonder Woman, except with a hammer. Uh, There's Green Ghost, who is a superheroine in a green full body suit, and she can make people teleport. There's Martian Man, who is a Martian, who is also a man. 
There's red. What? There is <laughs> there is Red Rush, who is definitely the Flash, who's running around, and their whole thing is they're trying to stop these two blue aliens from taking over the White House. But primarily, they are trying to evacuate civilians away from the carnage in front of them. So they are most definitely the good guys. However, it all starts going very wrong very quickly, and they are beginning to lose the fight until who arrives but Omni Man. Now, Omni Man. If I was to describe him accurately, I would say imagine a cross between. Superman, who he's definitely aping. He's got the cape, he can fly, he's incredibly strong, all that kind of stuff. Mixed with Tom Selleck by way of J. Jonah Jameson. Got a a vision in your head there? The sort of silver fox kind of thing, but muscled like Superman with the Tom Selleck moustache. And he turns up. And And, uh, J. Jonah Jameson, is he a a miserable, ornery boss? Well, no, imagine the big square jaw and the fact that he is. Oh, uh, physically. And as you correctly pointed out at the start of this review, um, he is voiced by J.K. Simmons. Wonderful. So he turns up and he is definitely the Superman analogy and he saves the day. He is immensely more powerful than the rest of the Guardians of the Globe and he kicks the aliens' asses and saves the White House. We then cut back to essentially his home life. And when he goes back home, we meet his son, Mark Grayson. And he's just your average teenager, really. Nothing particularly special about him. Um, He's going to high school every day. He's being beaten up by the high school bully. And he works in a small-scale burger restaurant in the evenings to try and make a bit of money. And he is desperate because he knows that his dad is Omni-Man for his superpowers to kick in because he is the son of a superhero. Only one evening, he goes to take the garbage out at the burger restaurant where he works. And he goes to put a garbage bag in the bin. And the first one, he can only just about get in. And the second one, he gets angry with it and he throws it. And all of a sudden, it soars off into the distance, going four miles. So finally, at the age of almost 18, his superpowers have kicked in. So he excitedly goes home and tells his old man that, look, my powers are kicking in. I can finally be a superhero like you. And his dad is uh, a little bit reluctant and a little bit surprised. He kind of seems to have given up at this point on the idea that his son would ever be even a quarter of what he's ended up being. But nevertheless, he decides to take him under his wing and begin training him. So they start out with teaching him how to fly. Um, He's quite good at the flying bit initially, although he's very, very bad at the landing. He flies through the air quite successfully. And then when it comes to landing, just smashes face first into the ground and leaves a huge crater (laughs) and bounces off buildings and all over the place. And despite his dad telling him to try and take it slow, he is desperate to become the superhero he always imagined himself to be and to live up to his dad's expectations. So he starts running around the city fighting the various villains of the city, of which there are many. This is very much one of those worlds where superheroes and supervillains are kind of all over the place. And it's a common daily occurrence to see them fighting it out and busting holes in tower blocks and all that kind of thing. Now, this is where I start to run into trouble because everything I've described so far sounds fairly conventional for a superhero show, right? I should probably point out as well that he names himself, of all things, Invincible, which everybody around him points out is kind of presumptuous, really, for a young superhero (laughs) to name yourself Invincible, but he chooses chooses Invincible as his name and he um, gets a yellow and blue suit with goggles made from the superhero Taylor Arts, who is voiced by Mark Hamill, funnily enough. Oh, that's a nice little touch. But yeah, everything so far sounding fairly conventional. Yeah, well, I mean, I, yeah, I'm, I've got a grip on it. From it's your, your young superhero becoming actual superhero yeah. with the mechanic yeah. of his dad's already a superhero and he's trying to live up to his dad's expectations. So I'm watching this and thinking, this is really cool because this is like watching Saturday morning cartoons except it's for adults. And then at the end of episode one, there is a hell of a twist and it sets up the plot hook for the entire rest of the show. And I would be remiss, really, I couldn't leave this review here without telling you what happens at the end of episode one. However, it's a hell of a spoiler at the same time. I was thinking, how the hell am I going to do this for this review? So I've come up with sort of a halfway house, which is I'm going to, in a second, do a countdown. And then I'm going to say spoilers begin here. And I'm going to give myself exactly one minute to talk about what happens at the end of episode one. Now, if you're completely spoiler averse and you want to go into this as blind as possible and you just want to hear what I think about it and whether I think it's a good show or not, all you have to do is after I say spoilers begin now, uh, skip one minute ahead. And I won't reference any more spoilers after that point. But I would be totally missing out a huge, huge factor of why this show is great if I didn't talk about it. Does all that make sense? Yeah, and that's fair. So it's sort of a half-assed thing. I do apologize. I've been thinking all week of ways I could do this and this is the best way I've come up with, okay? So let me just get my timer ready on my phone. Okay, so here we go. It'll be a minute after I say spoilers begin now. Three, 
two, one. Spoilers begin now. So at the end of episode one, the guardians of the globe are called to their secret hideout. They've all got these watches that go off that tell them when there's an emergency and they need to assemble so they can all create a plan together and then go off and defeat whatever evil villain there is that week. They all turn up and none of them can figure out who pressed the button that told them all to turn up. They're all looking at each other going, I thought you you sent us to be here. I thought you, you were the one that pressed the button. No, no, no. So who gathered us all together? And all of a sudden, Omni-Man turns up and proceeds to incredibly, brutally, viciously, and graphically murder every single one of the Guardians of the Globe. In absolute gratuitous fashion, I'm talking heads exploding, arms being ripped off, guts being thrown open, blood splattering up the walls. I'm talking crunching, visceral murder. So he's not a very nice man then. And that's the end of our minute. (laughs) Okay, so as you can hear my alarm going off here, the minute of spoilers is over and I won't reference any further than that point. Mm. But believe me, that is a mic drop moment. An absolute mic drop moment. Okay, let's get on then with what I think of Invincible. I think this is really, really cool. This is adult animation done in a way I haven't really seen it done before. Because although it's directly aping those Saturday morning cartoons, it's also throwing in some really dark themes and some really, really gratuitous, splattery violence in there as well. This is most definitely not for kids. Do not let your kids anywhere near it. It kind of revels in it. But what I loved is that it doesn't revel in it in the same way that, say, Rick and Morty does to quote another brilliant adult animated series. Because what they do with it, they always keep, although Rick and Morty occasionally does go down dark avenues, it mostly is about sort of the lightness of it. They're having fun with, you know, organs exploding and eyes popping, all that kind of stuff. It's wacky. It's wacky. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Wacky is a good word for it. Invincible is not wacky. When it goes for violence, it goes as on the nose, as uh, more on the nose actually than any other animated show I've ever seen which I found really, really impressive. It's not afraid to go exceptionally dark, but it also manages to keep up that fun, zany, sitting in front of the, the TV on a Saturday morning with your bowl of cereal cartoon feel throughout it. It manages to do that light and shade throughout beautifully well. It's exceptionally well-written. There are lots of twists and turns in the narrative here. There are lots of subverting of superhero tropes. There are many, many characters that get fleshed out in all these beautifully different and brilliant and bizarre ways. There's so much creativity here. And it's based on a series of comics written by uh, Robert Kirkman, Corey Walker, and Ryan Otley. So there's obviously a a stylistic theme that's already been chosen by the comic here. And obviously these are um, pre-rendered plots, if you like. They're now being put into TV show format. But the depth of writing... I thought was insane. Um, the cast list is fantastic as well. I already mentioned J.K. Simmons um, as uh, Nolan Grayson slash Omni-Man. You've got uh, Gillian Jacobs. You've got Walton Goggins. Oh, wow. Well, yeah. Um, Zach Quinto. Um, you've got, yeah, like I said, Mark Hamill. Um, Clancy Brown, who turns up as a demon detective. Oh, man, you're spoiling me. He turns up as a um, TV, de- um, sorry. He turns up as a demon detective that is very obviously Hellboy. As well, this is very, very close to copyright on just about everything. It really is um, pastiching and parodying sure, yeah, these yeah. characters, although it never quite goes into full-on comedy. There are definitely comedy moments in it, but it takes itself quite seriously. And I love that about it because despite the fact you're watching a cartoon, you do get really, really invested and really involved. It's got a proper narrative. In fact, it's got several proper narratives and it fleshes them all out beautifully well. The animation is stunning. I mean, some of the action set pieces in this are just eyegasms. They really, really are. Again, all rendered in that 90s cartoon visual style. They've obviously mixed in some, I'd imagine all of this is made on um, using CG to look like 2D animation. But they've obviously mixed in some 3D animation and stuff as well. But it, it just looks wonderful in the way you kind of remember those cartoons being, even though they weren't. If you go back and look at Thundercats or whatever these days, the animation is actually pretty fucking terrible, right? Yeah, yeah, it is. But in your nostalgia-filled mind, it all looked fantastic. This looks like what your nostalgia-filled mind thinks those cartoons look like, which is a really, really clever trick to pull off. It's got a great soundtrack as well. A lot of Run the Jewels in there. And very slick hip-hop moments. And some of the set pieces are so gory 
as to almost be reveling in it in a way that it, there's sort of a weird unsettling aspect that it's rendered in so much detail, except your brain is telling you that you're watching a kid's cartoon, except you're very obviously not. The way it dances between that the whole way along, I thought was exceptionally well done. I was kind of, there were, there were some plot twists and action sequences and things this show does that made my jaw drop at points. Really did left me sitting there going, wow, I can't really think of anything else quite like it. It's adult animation done in a way that I haven't seen done before. And it begs you to take it seriously and you believe it. May I ask an eye-rolling question? Of course you can. Is there foul language and shagging? Uh, yeah, a, a bit of both. But um, use some realistically, I'd say, it never goes into that... Um, doesn't overdo it. It's, yes, precisely. It doesn't overdo it. No, no. It starts out with the violence from the sounds of it. <laughs> and even then, I'd say, it's attempting to say it's gratuitous, but it's gratuitous to make a point. It's, right. It makes the violence punchy. There's plenty of points within this where I actually winced. And you know how many dark and gory and disgusting things we watch as part of our daily discourse of that doing just t- piques my TV and film. Even more. Invincible made me wince just about more than all of them combined. It really, really does go for it, but it's witty and it's clever and it's well-developed and I just want 15 seasons of it, essentially. There's one season out, eight episodes. Each episode's about 45 minutes long. So there's a nice chunk of content there. But I kind of, I got to the end of it and thought, you know what? One of the nice things about those cartoons was they did a million episodes. So no matter how many times you watched X-Men, it always seemed to be a new one. With this, there's only eight so far, and I can't really blame him for that because they've only just started. But I desperately, desperately want more of it. I think it's exceptionally well done and well judged. And I highly recommend it. Even if you're not a fan of that kind of animation, please do give it a go. And if you are, if you are that kid like me that woke up early on Saturday mornings where your parents were having a lion, quietly made yourself a bowl of cereal, turn on the TV with the volume down and watch cartoons, this is for you. Except it's been upgraded for adults. And it just gets it. Dead on. Really dead on. You'd Sad. love it. You'd really, really love that it. That sounds fucking amazing, man. Seriously, yep. yeah. Tell you what, watch the first episode and get back to me. Because, yeah, I, yeah. I don't know how many people chose to skip ahead. I am going to have to. Where, where can I find it? It's on Amazon. It's an Amazon original. On, what, with subscription or? Uh, yeah, yeah, with, with Prime, yeah. Awesome. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's, it's really, really mind-blowing stuff, actually. I'm really impressed with it. It's a very, very impressive show from just about every angle you look at it from. Sweet. Yeah, I'm going to have to jump on that one, mate, for sure. It really is brilliant stuff. Okay, then, we'll finish off trivia this week. Uh, I thought I'd do cartoons and animation, which we've done before, but this time with a focus on those 80s and 90s Saturday morning cartoons. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. Uh, for a bit of that? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Okay, let's finish off with these, then. Thundercats featured 121 characters voiced by only eight actors. Wow, fucking hell. (laughs) Over the course of the show's four seasons and 130 episodes, I had no idea it was 130 episodes. I'm sure I watched all of them when I was a kid. 121 distinct characters were introduced. Because there were only eight actors, that meant that each actor averaged 15 characters for the series' run. That's a lot of goddamn work. Mm, Absolutely. I still can't get over that. 130 episodes over four seasons. That's a mad amount of content. And they were short, but still, massive amounts. Saturday morning cartoons vanished in the 2000s, largely due to the Children's TV Act, requiring stations to have three hours of educational slash informational programming per week. To avoid the station's affiliates scheduling the information information during their weekday shows, Saturday mornings took the hit. So it's actually like a government mandate thing. I would imagine that's American government, but that would have affected the rest of the world as well. They weren't educational or uh, or informative enough. Piss off. (laughs) Kids are allowed to have fun, damn it. They used to be. Yeah. Yeah. The phrase, and knowing is half the battle, concluded every episode of G.I. Joe, A Real American Hero, because government censors at that time heavily restricted violence in children's cartoons. Cartoons like G.I. Joe and He-Man incorporated a moral lesson in each episode as a means to pacify the censors. Hmm. So you could have them beating up monsters and all that. Famously, He-Man had a sword and never cut anybody in half with it as well. He always used it to like deflect arrows and things like that. But you could justify all the beating people up as long as it had a, a good moral message. Presumably a good Christian moral message, given America at the time. 
Well, I mean, Parker and Stone always have a very good sort of humanistic moral message at the end of South Park, and yet the anti-South Parkers never seem to bother taking any notice of that. Yeah, so. I mean, you could argue all media's got some sort of moral message in it somewhere, couldn't you? But I suppose yeah. they were trying to be overt with it. This <clears> is a, a good thing to teach children. Yeah, yeah, a good moral message. Mm. You know, some moral messages are a bit... Mm. <laughs> <laughs> the catchphrase cowabunga was not scripted for Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Townsend Coleman blurted it out in an ad-lib and the studio liked it so much it became Michelangelo's catchphrase. Cowabunga. Cowabunga, dude. Yeah, it's just apparently something that he just riffed. Cool. Over 40 million Care Bears toys were sold between 1983 and 1987 and American Greetings printed over 70 million of their cars during the decade. Sales of their merchandise reached over $2 billion during the 1980s. Holy shit. Remember the Care Bears cartoon? Yeah. They all had some weird Care Bear stare or something where they came together and became super-powered, if I remember correctly. I just remember the Key and Pill skit where the gang member is uh, lamenting his dead best friend and they say that when they were kids, they used to pretend to be Care Bears. It's like, I used to pretend I was a sunshine bear and it's in front of all these crack-dealing, yeah. mad, like, crips. It's quite <laughs> Batman, the animated series, 1995, had a lot of source material to draw from past Batman comics and television series. However, the show would create supporting characters that were not considered canon, but would get a huge fan following for years to come. The character Harley Quinn was created as a love interest and sidekick for the Joker, who would branch out into comics and movies long after the animated series had ended. Oh. I didn't know that. The Harley Quinn actually came from the cartoon, the Saturday morning cartoon. No, I didn't know that. Either. I always assumed she was comics first, like the rest of them. Yeah, yeah. That, well, I always took that as a given first. Interesting, huh? In the comic books, Scrooge McDuck's arch-rival Flint Hart Glomgold is from South Africa. In the cartoon, he's from Scotland, as is Scrooge. His nationality was changed for the cartoon due to political issues in South Africa in the 80s. Yes, political issues. Political issues, indeed, yes. Worth doing some research as to what those <laughs> political issues were, isn't it? I thought that was interesting. Yeah, well, we're changing to be Scottish. We don't want to be touching any of that. Yeah. Yeah, What wise move, a wise move. Not all controversies surrounding cartoons are necessarily sensible. In 2012, Ukraine's National Expert Commission for Protecting Public Morality argued that SpongeBob SquarePants presented a very real threat to impressionable Ukrainian youngsters. The reason? SpongeBob's promotion of the homosexual lifestyle. <laughs> Sorry, did we watch the same cartoon? <laughs> I guess it was all, I suppose it was about inclusivity, wasn't it? But I, I think you're really stretching. This group calls themselves the National Expert Commission. Yes, that's a wonderful name, isn't it? Ukraine's National Expert Commission for Protecting Public Morality. Nothing nefarious there. Yeah. Yeah. We were talk, you were talking about a character on the Invincibles uh, doing something that could be construed as presumptuous. Mm. <laughs> the National Expert Commission. Fucking hell. Yes. Uh, yeah, that just blows your mind, doesn't it? As I understand it, uh, Ukraine's moved on quite a bit since then. Or at least we can hope. Let's, yeah, yeah. Fingers crossed. And my last fact here. The last episode of the 80s kids cartoon, David the Gnome, involves the main character and his wife going into the mountains for a death ritual. They die and turn into trees. Nice. Oh, very sort of... Food for thought. Yes. Some of those kids' cartoons, though, I think they were quite aware. That, Scoring. I think they were quite aware that parents weren't paying attention, so occasionally they sneak something really fucking dark in. Just to, you know. I mean, I mean, I know it was you know a little bit because I was obviously you know I was born in the late 1980s, so I was I remember growing up with stuff like you know Rugrats, but even a lot a lot of Nickelodeon stuff. Rugrats has some dark. Yeah, stuff you look at it. stuff like Rugrats and Dog, mm. and even like and other you know shows. Not even you know you could go for the obvious routes like you know are oh, you afraid of the dark, but stuff like all real. Monsters and Rocco's Modern Life, you look back at some of them and go, this is some really fucked up shit. Yeah, they're <laughs> really trying to teach kids some of the, um, I don't know, some of the warnings of life. Some of the trying to yeah. get, uh, yeah, it was, they were, seem to be quite aware that parents did it in weren't rather watching. traumatic ways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but if you want to see the, the sort of the, the absolute genesis of that, Invincible is that. It's Saturday morning cartoons made for 30 year olds. And I think that's such a cool thing Beautiful. to do. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Okie dokie then. Well, that brings us to the end of our free podcast this week. We're off to record the premium. Uh, yeah, this week we're going to be talking about uh, film soundtracks and scores. We are indeed. Some of our yeah. favourites. Oh, and you've got an extra take as well. What are you re reviewing again? Um, I thought that I would uh, speak for a little bit about uh, Le Cercle Rouge, which is uh, probably Jean-Pierre Melville's most lauded film 
And it is an absolutely excellent movie uh, that I think warrants a little bit of discussion. There we go. Yeah, we told you we did unpretentious reviews of the classics as well. And damn it, there's one for the premium <laughs> podcast this week. But yeah, we're also going to get into soundtracks and scores and some of our favorite um, just music in film, essentially, and how it can be used to great effect. Indeed. But yes, if you're interested in any of that, please do check out cinementalist.com for a link to our Patreon page. You can follow us on Twitter at Cinementalcast. And you can follow Liam at... Liam at the movies at Wacko Jacko's Flicks. So yeah, please do follow us and uh, give us a subscribe. Please do check out the premium content. But if you don't fancy any of that, we'll be back next week with another free episode as per usual. Anything to add, Liam? Thank you very much as always, guys. And uh, I'm just going to lazily reiterate everything you've said. Yes, ditto. Yes, yes. emphatic on, you know, emphatic emphasis. (laughs) Just to be tautological on everything Andy said, yes. Absolutely. <laughs> and people say we're a negative podcast. Exactly. Right? <laughs> yes, exactly. It's poppycock, not true. Poppycock, indeed. <laughs> okay, guys, thank you so much for listening. Hope to see you on the next one, if not next week. Take it easy. <laughs>